Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is writing related. This is what you have downloaded. Thanks for listening. My name is Brad Listy, uh, reporting to you from Los Angeles. How are you today? It's nice to be with you. Uh, Edwidge Dantica is my guest. She is a past recipient of the National Book Critics Circle Award, uh, as well as a MacArthur Genius Grant. Her brand new novel, Claire of the Sea Light, is the September selection of the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Uh, TheNervousBreakdown.com, for those of you who don't know, is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club. For only $9.99 a month, you get a brand new title delivered to your door 
every 30 days. It's a great deal. So if you'd like to join, just head over to the nervousbreakdown.com and click on book club in the menu bar. Uh, very excited to have Edwidge here on the program and I will be talking with her in just a moment. But before we get going, I wanted to read uh, one email from a listener named Ryan who says, uh, Dear Brad, I just listened to your excellent interview with Mitchell Jackson, and I wanted to point something out. Jackson mentioned that his grandfather had a college degree, and you responded that he was one of the first black men in Alabama with a college degree. Without thinking much about it, Mitchell replied, Yeah, probably. Unless Jackson's grandfather was of college age in the latter part of the 19th century, it's certain that he wasn't one of the first black people in Alabama to earn a college degree. The first historically black colleges in Alabama were established in 1865, the year slavery was abolished, the HBCU that I attended and the one that I teach at were both founded that year. Otherwise, great interview. Looking forward to reading Mitchell's book and listening to more interviews. Peace, Ryan. So, uh, thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. And, uh, frankly, I feel a little dumb right about now. <laughs> uh, clearly I need a history lesson. And obviously, um, you know, when you're doing a show like this and having recorded conversations with people, you run the risk, uh, from time to time of saying things that either don't make sense or are just plain wrong. And, uh, in this case I was wrong. Mea culpa. Uh, I think I was trying to comment on Alabama more than I was trying to assert a historical fact. But uh, regardless, thank you for the correction. I appreciate it. And my apologies for the misstatement. Uh, otherwise, uh, what is going on? Today is uh, September 24th. I'm recording this on Tuesday, the 24th. And uh, I was just online and uh, saw, uh, you know, on some book site that today is F. Scott Fitzgerald's birthday. So happy birthday to him. If he were still alive, he would be uh, 117 today. And he died uh, at the very young age of 44 right here in Los Angeles, which I, I tend to forget. Uh, he died not far from where I'm sitting currently, which seems strange to me somehow. I feel like he should have died uh, like somewhere else. <laughs> in Paris or the south of France or like the Hamptons or something. But, uh, in fact, he was here and, uh, and here's like a, a an unrelated, uh, little known, uh, bit of trivia when F Scott Fitzgerald, uh, lived here in Los Angeles working as a screenwriter, uh, for a time he lived in an apartment building and one of his neighbors, uh, I think across the hallway was a young Lucille Ball who, uh, would go on to become, you know, a big star on television in I love Lucy. So how do you like that? It's a true story. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns, Depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. 
The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, my guest today, once again, is Edwidge Dantica. Her new novel, Claire of the Sea Light, is now available from Knopf. It is a great thrill to have her here on the program, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Here she is, folks. This is Edwidge Dantica, and her new book, once again, is called Claire of the sea light i've been living in florida for now 10 years um in some places that doesn't make you quite local yet (laughs) but it's such a transient city that um that i'm I'm starting to feel like i'm at home here yeah i mean i've lived in los angeles for like 12 years and i keep wondering like when do i officially like cross the line into saying that like i'm I'm a local i don't know (laughs) exactly like when do you get the passport right right exactly (laughs) Uh, so I wanted to start by asking you about Haiti, uh, because, uh, obviously you've written a lot about it, your work deals with it. And I'm curious to know if, uh, you ever feel as though you're being asked to be an official spokesperson for the Haitian experience or the Haitian American experience. And, uh, if so, uh, does that weigh on you? Is that something that you're uh, comfortable with? Well, it's not a role that I feel super comfortable in because I think um, there are such varieties of uh, experience concerning Haiti. You know, there are the Haitians who are living there, there are us Haitians in diaspora, and then you have all this um, outside exposure to just because of the non-governmental organization culture, so people who have been, who come out. But I don't think it's a um, country that anybody could define, like one person can define, because also, even within Haiti, you have very rich people, you have very poor people, you have some people in the middle, you have different religious practices, in the. so it's not a mon- monolithic culture. But I think it's a place that... It's good in a way for people to start with a blank slate. When you say you don't know too much about Haiti, um, sometimes I think that's good because then you are coming without often some of the big stereotypes that people have. And sometimes people come barreling through with their stereotypes thinking, I know this place. And even me, I was born in Haiti. I spent the first 12 years of my life in Haiti. I go back quite a bit. I still feel like you know, I don't always know the the Haiti of the moment. And every time I go, I have to relearn it. So it's a place that demands that you sort of address it with that kind of humility, that even if you're from there, you feel like you can't know all of it even. So so it's a, it's a good place to begin, too, in terms of fiction, because you're open. 
you're open to all the possibilities where the where the stories can lead you. So I don't think it's it's a it's a handicap necessarily um, when people say I know very little, but as long as you're open and you're willing to uh, to to inhabit this world of this particular book or other books. Uh, so I'm going to assume that most people listening are similar to me in terms of having a, a limited understanding of uh, Haiti. And uh, just a moment ago, I heard you use the word diaspora, which uh, you are a part of, the Haitian diaspora. And uh, I think it would be helpful uh, if I could get you to elaborate a bit on this particular experience, uh, especially from a, a historical perspective. Um, I'll frame my response in terms of a uh, general overview of Haiti. So Haiti and the Dominican Republic share the island of Hispaniola. It was initially inhabited by Tainos, and then the Spanish came in with Columbus, and the Tainos were wiped out, and they had the slave slavery there. In 1804, there was a revolution, and then Haiti uh, was invaded by the United States in 19, from 1915 to 1934, an occupation, and uh, which was the beginning of this army that continued uh, its presence in the form of the Duvalier dictatorship. Now, most of the diaspora, our diaspora started during those years of the dictatorship, where it was such a repressive regime that people started leaving the country to go to France, to different countries in Africa, to the United States. So um, people who are living outside of Haiti are often called uh, diaspora, which uh, which is uh, the the diaspora. And I'm I, I'm suppose a, a part of the a diaspora, and my children would be uh, as well. Okay, so uh, once again, the learning curve is uh, pretty steep for me because, uh, you know, until I was prepping for this interview, I didn't even realize that uh, the United States had invaded uh, and occupied Haiti in the early 20th century, which uh, I don't like to admit, but it's true. So, you know, I'm curious uh, whether or not you can, you know, do you trace a direct line from that particular part of Haiti's history to the Duvalier dictatorship? Like, do you you feel like there's a, a, a direct through line tying those two periods of Haitian history together? Well, you know, I always tell people, especially the the super anti-immigration people, that um, before we came here, you know, the United States came to us, and you're you're not alone in not even knowing about that because it's not something that's uh, talked about. Uh, very often, but the link with um, the Duvaliers in in um, in the spirit of the occupation, there was a shorter occupation of the neighboring Dom Dominican Republic too by the United States. Is that you had um, a local sort of force, like they they were called the Cacos, who were very much fighting against the the U.S. occupation, and so the U.S. They, most of the U.S. Marines who came doing that occupation were Southern, and to them it was, for example, very shocking to see um, black people running their own country. And and so there, there were stories. Uh, my my grandfather was a, a Kako, and there were stories in the family where this, you know, the, these Marines, these Southern Marines, would cover themselves in blackface and and go in the night and just and just kill people who were who were against this um, this occupation. So they had then the the these Marines had to train an army to help with this with this work, and so and this army was so repressive that it went through to the dictatorship, and it, until it was disbanded, and now the uh, current 
president, uh, according to news reports, wants to bring back another form of this army, which which would be um, a, a terrifying prospect. But um, and this is what this is Michelle, Michelle Mart- is it Michelle Martelli? Michelle Michelle Martelli, yes. Um, and so the, the reports have been circulating this past week that this was a campaign promise that he he had made, and now he's uh, thinking of rebringing his version of, of of the army. But that the origins of the army was from that occupation, and then um, they were. For example, U.S. Uh, soldiers later who wrote memoirs, then who through the whole dictatorship provided um, army support to the dictatorship because there was such a big fear of the spread of communism in the region. And so it's that whole thing, you know, where U.S. administration say, you know, this guy, he's a dictator, he's a son of a bitch, but he's ours, you know, as long as he's uh, is on our side. And the Duvaliers were, were certainly like that um, to the to the United States. Well, yeah. And, you know, obviously uh, the United States has a history of doing this sort of thing where we will prop up a dictator in some part of the world for the purposes of short-term gain uh, without necessarily considering the long-term or the human fallout. And, uh, you know, it's depressing to consider uh, and it's difficult to know how to address it because uh, it just keeps repeating itself. Uh, You know, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I mean, I know what you're saying, but I think it's um, it's so even in a literary context, it's so important to look back at these things because they they just keep circling back. I mean, this when we uh, talk about Syria right now, whether to whether to bomb or not to bomb, and and the whole conversation is happening on this level of you know these world powers and and. Who's asking, like, the person on the ground, you know, what that is going to do, not just to their lives eventually, but to their children and to their to their grandchildren's life? And, and so I think these, um, these issues are so, they repeat themselves. And in a way, that's the power of literature in that we get, we get a sort of a, a magnifying glass on on an experience, you know, on a reaction to that. So I, I can't wait, for example, to read the novels from that period. And that sometimes takes, you know, there are very complex things happening. Right. Um, they're very, but, but I, but ultimately sometimes you can read a novel that just, it doesn't solve all the problems. It doesn't answer all the questions, but just pulls you into an experience where you feel like you have a fuller understanding of, of at least a, a slice of a situation. Well, right, you know, and I, I, you know, I think of contemporary Haiti, uh, particularly in the aftermath of the big earthquake, and uh, I think like the word complexity comes to mind uh, because, you know, w- watching like the mediated version of post-earthquake ha- uh, Haiti and trying to wrap your head around uh, the magnitude of what happened there, it's overwhelming. And, uh, you know, hopefully there's a literature that can be born from that, uh, that can uh, shine a light on the experience and, and maybe point to uh, some sort of, uh, I don't know, I don't want to use the word solution. You don't happen to have the solution, do you? No, no. I, if, I, if I had had the answer, I think I would have uh, found some way to, uh, to solve all the, all the problems, which is often the fantasy of of writers, right? Because we can like, at least solve the problems um, in our books. But I think it's also important, um, and it's it's good that we started 
with the d- discussion of sort of these larger geopolitical problems because it's so important for people to understand how all these things are connected to the current reality. And for a lot of places in the world, including Haiti, um, we are sometimes blessed and cursed by our proximity uh, to certain larger powers, and but also to, to the larger forces of the environment. But all these things are connected in that, for example, um, a couple of years ago, not too long ago, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, who is the, the UN envoy to Haiti, apologized that when he was governor of uh, Arkansas, that he had uh, done some, he had sort of dumped Arkansas rice in, in Haiti, which killed the whole rice market in Haiti. And a couple of years ago, uh, the Food and Drug Administration here decided all the pigs in Haiti have this uh, chabot, which is a, a kind of swine flu fever, and all. And, and they, they decided they were going to wipe out 400,000 pigs. And um, and the pigs were, for a lot of families, it was like, that's how you send your kids to school, you raise livestock, especially the, these pigs. But then when something happens in Haiti, people say, all oh, these people, they can't get their act together. You know, it's a failed state without without then examining all of these external pressures. And this is just two examples in which things, you know, even if people wanted to to get up and, and say, you know, to, to, to send their children to school and do things that will propel their future, even if they wanted to do that, there are all these external pressures on, on them to, that is preventing them. So I think it's... Um, it, it's all, it's also important to contextualize, you know, all of these, all of these things when we talk about the poverty. It's not from people's lack of uh, ingenuity or lack of passion or lack of decision. Um, it has a lot to do with also um, all, so much that is just pressuring down on them. Well, you know, you bring up an interesting point because I feel like people in positions of higher privilege uh, often will try really hard to find uh, rationale uh, and reasons for why uh, the blame for uh, poverty should be placed squarely on the individual who is impoverished uh, as opposed to investigating it more deeply and, and taking into account the complexities of the situation and external pressures and so on. And to me, uh, this seems like a, a really emotionally naked uh, behavior because, you know, it basically amounts to washing one's hands of the situation and, you know, turning one's back on it with a feeling of uh, justification. Well, even in the United States, we we do that, right? We're, we're like, pull yourselves up by your bootstrap and, you know, as though people could do do certain things by will alone. Um, I, I think it's, it's something that, that generally people have to, it's, it's, um, it's sort of the, the opposite of, of acknowledging that we all share a common experience and that maybe some of us had opportunities offered to us that others didn't. So you hear people, even in this country, say, why can't they, why can't they get their act together? Why can't they, they do that? And, and it's not an excuse, but also it's, 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 it's wrong-minded to think that people can will themselves out of certain situations 
if obstacles are constantly put on their way, first of all, or if they don't, uh, if if they don't get the right um, kind of uh, support, or if their ability to advance themselves is constantly uh, being attacked. Okay, so on a somewhat related note, I want to ask you about uh, NGOs, uh, the non-governmental organizations, which uh, you often hear about in conversations regarding Haiti in the media, uh, because they have a significant presence there. And there's uh, some controversy regarding uh, these organizations and whether or not they're effective in terms of trying to uh, alleviate poverty or solve infrastructural problems or help rebuild or whatever. Um, I'm interested to know what your perspective is on the NGOs. Well, uh, sometimes uh, people will say, um, and I and probably the number has been um, updated, but Haiti has uh, one of the highest sort of ratio of NGOs per capita than um, countries that are much larger in size um, than a much many more than say a place like um, India and um, actually now I'm, I'm reading a wonderful book by Christopher Coyne called um, Doing Bad by Doing Good Why Humanitarian Action Fails and it, it's one of the one of the places that it, it talks about is sort of this this idea of uh, aid in Haiti and ways that sometimes even uh, the 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 aid itself, you know, be, continues this this cycle of sort of um, destroying local markets and and this notion of sustainability. There was also a wonderful film by a uh, uh, Haitian filmmaker Raoul Peck called Fatal Assistant, where he looks at that very closely. Um, it's I think it's 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 something that you can go go back, you know, uh, centuries almost to to observe. There are many studies or documentaries about how even on the African continent, aid uh, managed to to just keep people in a sort of a constant cycle of dependence, but also to destroy their own ability to be self-sufficient. And so that book, I would I would very much recommend doing by doing bad by doing good while humanitarian action fails. And he makes a much more um, intelligent uh, argument about how not only um, you know maybe better ways to do to do this kind of aid so that you're not you know taking power away from people but empowering them to improve their own communities if you if you allow them a say because often people come in and say oh this is what's good for you this is what you should have and right. without even consulting people whether they're uh people who are policymakers or or scholars or activists or even others who feel like I know what's good for you and and you better take it you know you better be grateful that I'm even here to to save you well that's another aspect of the complexity of things you know it's like even people with great intentions can sometimes screw things up <laughs> when they come in to help but it's also that it's a power there's a power element to it where the person coming in with the uh you know the dollars uh, the the you know financial assistance has a lot of leverage and it can be very um in a strange way it can be very defeating for the person receiving the assistance if it's not handled right and 
you know, I don't know. It's a good point to make because I think sometimes it can be easy to simplify the situation and say, well, we just need to, we need to send money, you know, or we need to send, you know, resources, but in terms of how they're allocated, um, you know, or, or I should say how they're allocated really matters. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I think one core, uh, aspect of it is also trusting the the people you are supposedly helping to know what is good for them at the same time you know to consult with them i it's amazing how how little people are consulted often uh, and and what is supposed to be something that uh, is going to affect their their entire future so it's um it's this being able to perhaps walk side by side with people. And I think that requires um, a lot of humility, you know, to say that I'm here to be with you as opposed to I'm here to, to, to save you. It's like the saying, if you're here to, you know, you, you, you're here to participate in my, in my struggle as opposed to you're here to be the, to be my savior. Right. So I want to uh, shift gears and ask you a little bit about your biography, um, in particular your early childhood in Haiti and the immigration experience. Uh, your parents immigrated first uh, to the United States. You stayed behind in Haiti and were raised by an aunt and uncle. Uh, like for how long? How long was that period? Well, um, for eight years, during which my mother and father came uh, to to. Haiti to document to so I was with my own and uncle for eight years. My parents came when I was seven. They came for one visit. Um, initially, when they both left, my parents were on tourist visas, so they were um, undocumented most of the time that that they were here, so they couldn't go back. And when they did go back, it was to so they went to they had to return to Haiti to. Uh, Fix their status, and I saw them then. And it took about five years after that for them to be able to send for my brother and me, so we could join them in New York, where they had then two other children. Okay. Well, you know, obviously, um, it's a significant hardship for a young child and for a family to have to endure uh, being separated like that. When you look back on this period of your childhood, do you remember it as a happy time? Well, it was, you know, it was kind of what it was. We were very much in touch with my parents. We would always write them letters. They would write us letters. And we did, we sent them cassettes back and forth. I mean, it sounds so prehistoric right now. <laughs> but, I but we would take... I know. I mean, a lot of the audience might not. They might be, what's that? But we would tape the cassettes and talk to them, and they would send us cassettes. And, and once a week, we would go to this calling center in the downtown Port-au-Prince at the, the phone company. There was called, was called Teleco. So, and they had these booths that were air-conditioned booths. You'd go in, and at the time, my parents would call in, and we would have a, a nice chat every Sunday afternoon. So we were always pretty much in touch, and it wasn't um, odd for us because there were quite a few other children in the family who were in the same house with my 
um, an uncle whose parents were in, in France and Canada and the Dominican Republic. So it was sort of kind of a family, um, a little family home for children whose parents were away. It didn't seem unusual to to us, and there was always that we we always knew that looming ahead was that would be this time when they would uh, send for us and that we'd all be reunited. Okay, so what was it like when that call finally came and suddenly you're you know you're you're in Brooklyn? Well, it was a really big shock um, because now children now who are coming to New York have such a much better sense. Like when I go back to Haiti, they start even calling if, if, if a child was in the same situation that we were, had parents abroad who were going to send for them, they start calling them diaspora, like even before they leave. So they'll say, oh, this kid is a diaspora. And I said, well, he's, you know, he's, and I said, oh, he's on vacation here. No, they said his parents are going to send for him. And then the kids already know a little bit about the States through, you know, there's more, through the movies, through television, and even the radio or magazines and, and things like that, even kids who are not even in, in big cities. But we knew absolutely nothing about the U.S. except that it was cold and that our parents were there. So when I landed in Brooklyn, I remember actually being on the airplane looking down and just seeing all those lights. That's all I kept thinking, oh, my God, like the lights of New York City from the airplane. It just felt like, wow. And then we land and we drive through. It was March. I remember when we, we, were, still, we were still a little nippy. You had your coat on. And then we drive through uh, from Queens to Brooklyn where my parents were living into this building. And, and the building, I swear to me, at that time looked like some kind of prison. It was just like, first of all, we were on the sixth floor and all these doors and you couldn't see your neighbor. It, part of it was, it was, it was a bit of a, of a shock, you know, but it's, it's kind of like the way we are when we see anything new. And, but the only thing that was familiar with that was that my brothers, even though um, I didn't, you know, they were, about there were maybe there were seven and five and so even that but that they felt familiar my parents felt familiar the food we're eating and things like that but it was uh it was quite a shock okay so and, and how did what was it that precipitated the call uh, to bring you guys up like did your parents just get themselves financially situated and get jobs and that was what finally allowed them to bring you, or was there some sort of uh, legal status situation that finally resolved itself? Yeah, there was the legal status situation, so they had to then get their residency after which they had started the process by coming to Haiti. And so then they had to go physically to Haiti to fill out the forms for us. And then they had to uh, prove that they were financially able to take care of us. And, you know, it was almost like um, adapting a child even because then they had to have, you know, from uh, the immigration people, I said, where are they going to sleep and things like that. So they had to, the, the paperwork, all of that took about five years from their um, initial filing. God, what a process. I mean, you know, like just, oh, yeah. just to get your family together, it's just, it's, it's an unbelievable. And um, what did your parents do uh, for a living? Both my um, my mother and father, when they just got to New York, were they worked in factories. My mother um, worked through her whole time in um, in New York in handbag factories. Because I remember when I was fifteen, I went 
to one with her because they wouldn't pay her and she wanted us to to translate for her like basically to this lady and a and a and a give me my money like that's what we had to say <laughs> and so and my dad was um he used to work in like he he always told the story how he worked in a car wash and then he used to work in a glass factory um, initially when he got to New York. So he was always sick because he was going to like this factory where they were blowing glass and then would go to this car wash where it was cold. Um, and then eventually when we got there, because he wanted more flexibility, he, he drove a, a cab, a gypsy cab, basically was he kind of turned a private car into a, a, a taxi. Wow. Well, you know, it, it makes me think about the notion of generational sacrifice and how, uh, you know, in the context of the immigration experience, that first generation tends to bear a far greater burden than those that succeed it. And, and that certainly seems to be the case uh, with your parents. Absolutely. I think there's always that, you know, that first generation that comes with with big expectations and but little else, you know, and, and, and of course there are a lot of people who come as middle class people who are uh, super educated and have to, you know, in their estimation sort of bear the humiliation of driving a cab. There's also, there are also those stories, which is, which, which are just as important and just as valid. Um, but, but this, this is sort of the, the, the story I know best of people really this level of of sacrifice that people are still making, you know, to this day, there are people who are coming here in containers who, some of them who are, you know, people are walking across the desert to, to cross and, and a lot, and many of these people are doing it for their children so that their children can have a better future and to have better possibilities. So I think that that element where people think like, you know, you're here to take everything, but, uh, but the level of sacrifice that it takes, uh, is just extraordinary for, for that generation, uh, like my parents' generation, people who left the dictatorship or, uh, you know, people who, who left for more opportunities. I mean, that, that level of sacrifice is tremendous. And you always ask yourself as, maybe the beneficiary of, of such sacrifice. You're, you know, I, you always think, you know, am I worthy, first of all? But you ask yourself, you know, if you would have been able to do it. Right. And, and right. you know. So, okay. So when you were a young person and you were new to the States and you were uh, assimilating, were you cognizant of this sacrifice? I think I was cognizant of it. And I, uh, you know, I was very shy in my early years. I was very shy because also that at the time that we came, it was a very difficult time. They were just, it was 1981, they were just talking about AIDS in this country. They called it GRID. And, and they had four groups of people in the city who were at higher risk. And Haitians were the only people who were there by nationality. So, so we, the high-risk groups were homosexuals, hemophiliacs, heroin addicts, and Haitians. And um, and there were big marches against the FDA for that designation because there was no real proof as to why. I think there were some cases, um, some early cases that had come out of Haiti, but there were early cases from France too. There were you know there were Frenchmen, but nobody said France, you know. And so 
and a lot of people suffered for that. A lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of my parents' friends who were working in kitchens, caring for people, uh, were let go because nobody understood how the disease was transmitted then. So at school, you know, we would get hit, beaten up all the time. And I remember there was a school trip that the, all the Haitian kids who were in this English as a second language program that I was in, we weren't allowed to go on the school trip because they didn't want us on the bus. And they were kind of, you know, not even hidden about it. They were just, you know, at this moment, you can't go on the school trip. And it was so humiliating. Um, so things like that. I was I was very shy, but I, um, it sounds like a cliche of a story for a writer, but I read. I was, you know, that was my salvation. I really, I dug in and I just read books and I lost myself in that, in that world because there was so much, um, it wasn't even like assimilation didn't even seem possible. Just survival was my goal. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, with respect to this and with respect to the, you know, your sense of dislocation and the impossible, um, uh, the impossibility of assimilation at that particular time in your life. Uh, you know, it seems like a set of experiences that could turn a person inward and uh, could be formational from a writerly perspective. So I'm interested in knowing uh, if when you look back at this particular period in your life, if you see it as the time when you became a writer, or if you feel that, you know, the writer in you was present at a younger age. Oh, it predated that because I love stories. I, I um, There's a a very powerful storytelling um, tradition in Haiti. And I just, I was a great, I soaked it up. I always tell people that sort of my first writing teachers were the storytellers of my childhood. But I knew because again, I was shy. I didn't think I could tell stories that way. But when I found books, I thought, oh, this is, here's a wonderful way to tell stories. And I remember when I was nine, I would I would get paper and cut it up and try to write little books with my with my brother and and my cousins. So that was and they would do the illustrations and I would do the text. So I always knew. I think for almost as long as I can remember that I wanted to um, to be a writer. When I got here to the states, they were just more books available to me, even actually more Haitian books, because they had, uh, at the Brooklyn Public Library, they had a section in French of uh, books written by Haitian writers with, who hadn't been taught yet in, in Haiti. So I just soaked those up. But the more I read, for example, the more I realized that becoming a writer uh, was possible. But I always had writerly ambitions, which were too hampered by the fact that you know, during the dictatorship, a lot of uh, the writers were exiled or were killed. So if you told somebody in the family you wanted to be a writer, that was what was in their mind. But so I kept it to myself, but I always had um, some some notion that no matter what else I was doing, that I would also still be writing. Okay. And so from um, high school in Brooklyn, you wound up going to Barnard College? Yes. I, I went to Barnard College, which was completely... It's funny how sometimes when I when I talk to high school students and who are in Brooklyn and then it's funny how this it was like a whole different world. Like it was a couple of you know maybe in a forty five minute subway ride away, but it was a whole different world. So I I learned there from Brooklyn, which in a neighborhood which was mostly Haitian, um, with mostly people from the Caribbean. But then to go to Barnard, where they were still. 
um, elements of, you know, that some of the students were certainly from the Caribbean and the staff and some of the professors, but it was still like this whole other world with, um, with the kind of people that had not been exposed to at all. So it was in terms of the student body, you know, um, so it was very, it was a very, another interesting, um, experience. Okay. So, uh, you know, obviously, um, this is a rapid progression. At this point, you've been in the States for five or six years and, uh, you know, had dealt with all the struggles associated with that initial adjustment. And so by the time you got to Barnard, did it feel like a, a natural transition or uh, was it like, wow, uh, I'm at Barnard, uh, where am I again? <laughs> yeah, it was like, Wow, I'm at Barnard, definitely. <laughs> and even even though I didn't know what Barnard was, I just knew it was like so. When when I would say that I'm at Barnard, people would say, "Oh, Columbia University! Oh my God!" And they would get they would get so excited. So I I felt in a way like I I forced gumped my way my way to it. But education though was the thing. My parents used to say to me, you know, as a, also the oldest girl in the family, when I was in, in high school in part, my job was to help take care of my, my brothers who were younger than me. You know, I was, had cooking duties. I had, you know, I had to share in the household thing. I was sort of like, my mother would to say, like, I could spank my brothers. I was, you know, like the oldest child, the oldest girl. Wow. You're just like a substitute mom. <laughs> but they would say, you know, my, my brothers would say, yeah, but there's three of us and one of you. <laughs> so, um, so it was like being another a substitute mom. But the moment I started um, college, they said, you know, your single job, the one job you have is to, you know, get really good grades here. You don't have to do anything else. And so it was just so important because I was the first person in my family to be going. And, and we were feeling our way through it because we hadn't, you know, my, my parents hadn't gone through that whole, the SATs and all of these things. And, you know, when I think of all the things people do now, the prep courses and all of that. So we were just basically feeling our, feeling our way through it, but they wanted me to have, um, you know, all the time and energy to, to kind of succeed at it. Because also when you're the oldest, you're, you're sort of setting a path for the ones that come after you. So that was something that I kept repeating. But it was always stressed to me that education was your primary goal and that was the only way that you could make a better life for yourself. And my parents would always stress, you know, that they hadn't had the opportunities that we were having and that it was extraordinarily important to, to take advantage of them. So uh, you're writing. Uh, obviously you were, you were writing from like a childhood on, but once you got into college, uh, like when did things become more concentrated for you? Like where you were actually attempting to write short stories and book length projects and thinking about publication? Well, I was writing since high school. I used to write for my, um, high school literary magazine, which was basically mimeographed. I remember because I was on the editorial team and we basically were rolling out that machine. And then um, I used to also write for a, a high school newspaper, but it was citywide called NYC, New Youth Connections. And all the, it was 
put in all the high schools in the city. So I would start. I started writing for them, and um, and and when my things were published, and people would in my high school would come in up and talk to me, which was really bizarre. Was because I was in a class with maybe twenty of us who were in a, a, a kind of honors program. We we're like the super nerds of the school, <laughs> and. You know, we had all our classes together and everything. And but people from the general population, as we would say, would come and talk to me about the things that I had had written. So one of the the, the nonfiction pieces that I wrote for that paper was about my first day here in the U.S. and and then I I turned it into non into fiction. So I it and that became ultimately a short story called Arena Daffodils, which is the beginning of um, Breath Eyes Memory, which was my first, my first book. So I started like, I started like that sort of little steps and I wrote um, a lot of Breath Eyes Memory through, through college while I was um, studying French and economics. And so whenever I had a final, oh, there's a, I was inspired. Like there was, it was writing fiction was my method of procrastination in, in college. And I, I kept entering contests. I entered the Seventeen Magazine Fiction Contest. I, I entered all these other. You know, I I published in very small literary journals. I took a couple of classes uh, at Barnard writing classes, and so I tried to. It was kind of like my promise to myself that whether I became a businesswoman through economics or uh, started working at the UN through languages or something, I would always be writing. And so when I was in college, I wrote through. And then I applied to the from Barnard to the writing program at Brown University. I'd sent a simple, a piece of uh, Breath Eyes Memory. And they have a very sort of time-wise generous program at, at Brown. And you also financially, you know, you get support and everything. So I wrote Breath Eyes Memory I didn't workshop it. I just worded on my own. I always tell MFA students, like, you should have your own little secret project that you don't workshop and get beaten up about. So that book was my own. So I would workshop stories, which then went into Creek Crack, my second book. And then I was writing privately Breath Eyes Memory. When I graduated, it was my thesis. I sent it to Laura Ruska, among other people. I sent Laura Ruska at Soho Press. And I remember, I remember so well when she called me um, and said, uh, "We want to publish your book." And I said to her, "How much do I pay you?" <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and she yeah. said, "No, we pay you." You could tell that that would kill my negotiation there, but <laughs> but that's a, that's a good opening but, gambit. I like that opening gambit. Yeah. <laughs> Just so that's how, I, yeah, that's how Breath Eyes Memory got got published okay, right so, after when I, you know. So, okay. So just to make sure I understand the timeline, were you at Brown when you finished, you had come out of Brown and you had that manuscript in hand and then you sent it directly to the publisher? Uh-huh. I, it was my thesis at Brown. Okay. So when I, when I turned in my thesis, I, I turned one in to my advisor and then I looked up all these publishers, small ones that were doing unsolicited uh, manuscript, like that would accept an unsolicited. And actually, years later, Laura Ruska told me that the only reason she ended up reading um, my manuscript was that she wanted to write me a rejection letter. 
but couldn't figure out whether I was a man or a woman. <laughs> so she was she wasn't sure whether to address it to dear, dear Mr. Danticat or dear Miss Danticat. So she opened it. She started reading to get a feeling of my my sex through it. And then, and that's how she ends up reading it. Even see, I mean, and you, you know, know what? I meant to start this conversation by telling you that I, I absolutely love your name. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just, and it just sounds like I don't know. It, to me, it sounds like exactly the kind of name that uh, a very good author should have. And I, I say that as a person who has very mixed feelings about his own name, like Edwidge Danticat. <laughs> That sounds like an author. Uh, Brad just doesn't sound like an author to me. (laughs) (laughs) There's some great Brads, and you know. I don't know. I don't know. Brad Morrow. (laughs) See, even he's Bradford. He goes by Bradford. That's not on my birth certificate. Oh, oh, wow. I'm stuck with the the truncated version, um, which is a whole different topic of conversation. But uh, so this initial public. But my name got me. Yeah, I'm not saying that that name got me. You know, got my foot in the door. I would say dumb luck, but you know, my parents were onto something. That's exactly what I'm saying. That name. I mean, it really did play a role. Um, So you you have that initial publication success, which must have been you know such a thrill, uh, and then also probably gives you some confidence to continue. Uh, And so at that point. Like, did you say to yourself, uh, I'm in and like, I'm going to do this for a lifetime or were you still sort of feeling your way? Like, at what point did you feel like this is something I'm really going to be able to, to do? So, um, so the, the moment I knew that this is what I wanted to do was when Laura came to this office where I, where I was working, which was a, a couple of streets down from Soho Press in Soho. And I had gotten a job working for Jonathan Demi as uh, as an assistant in his office, and because I was interested in film and and was very happy to have that job. So Laura one day comes into the office um, after we had galleys for Breath Eyes Memory, and they had sold the paperback rights to Vintage, and it's it's so delicious when you don't know anything about this world, you know. Like, this is totally a first encounter. You don't know how it's supposed to go. You don't know about Publishers Weekly and all of that. So then she comes in and says, we have this paperback deal. And, you know, she says, I, you should think about a career. You know, and I thought, wow, that's this is so cool. You know, and so then I started thinking, oh, maybe there's a, a possibility of doing this as, as my work. Like, you're like, oh, my God, a career? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So. Uh, yes. Exactly. When it comes to when it comes to the actual day to day work, uh, you know, the writing work itself. Like, how do you operate? Are you an everyday writer? Uh, did you become one after that moment, or um, are you able to get books done working just a couple days a week, or you know, what does it look like? Well, after that, you know, I I didn't even quit my job for a long time after that, um, and then I then I did leave because I it was I I, I wasn't feeling well because of sort of the the long days and then trying to write at night it was so I I, I left that job and took a year to just write I got a little office in in Manhattan next to the uh, the man who now 
has become my my accountant for the for, since then we you know I had like half the office that he had and I would go there you know I was trying to to discipline myself and I would take the subway every day and go to my office and and write and it was very hard at first because I realized that I work best when my time is you know, when I have to squeeze it in as opposed to just like having the whole day, you know, and then suddenly it was sort of like, be careful what you wished for. But I managed to, in that time, you know, put together uh, the story, my story collection, Creek Crack, and then I started this other novel, which was the first time I, I was starting a novel knowing that, oh, I'm starting a novel, like Breath Eyes Memory was sort of kind of developed over time. So I started that that novel there, but now my process is um, pretty much back to like when I was kind of similar to when I was working, because I have small children at home, and then you know then now when you have a book out you have to travel, so you try to uh, squeeze it in as much as possible. I would love to be a kind of everyday writer because once I have an idea, once I'm working on something, I become totally. Like I wanna, like I feel like, oh, I wanna finish before, in case I get hit by a bus. Like you, you know, you, <laughs> like I, like I have a kind of like, I wanna go through that whole draft. Like I wanna, I would love to do it in one sitting if I could. You know, just I like, uh, you know, I like Kerouac or something. But, um, but now you just like I try to write around my life. I don't write every day, um, but I, I write. Whenever I can, I love to have like a big stretch of time, whether it's a week where I, where there's nothing else happening but the writing. But that's becoming, you know, more and more rare just because of, of life. But I try to get it to it whenever I can. So what is the experience of uh, motherhood? I mean, I guess time is the big thing, but has it focused your energies? Because I have, you know, I have a small child. I'm sort of going through that. And I know... There are probably plenty of people listening who either have that uh, potentially on the horizon or who are dealing with it as well. Like, how do you uh, think that the two experiences work together or, or do they work together? <laughs> how, how old is your child? Uh, she's, she just turned three. She just turned three. So you're, you're like in the thick of it. My two are, my two daughters are eight and four. And it's really, you kind of gradually learn what, what works for you. I mean, in the beginning, you, you want to feel like, you know, I'm still the same person and this is just an extra thing I'm doing. But um, small children, people underestimate how much work that, you know, you need to put in, especially in the, those early years. I mean, it's, um, especially, if, you know, for for mothers, you know, I think I think it's it's a lot of also mental involvement. You want to do it, you know, in a way that you feel like it's not neglecting your child. So ultimately, everyone, you grow into your 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 balance. And I always tell my writer mother friends who are just entering into it that it gets you know it gets easier because. Before you know it, they'll you know they'll have their little classes, they'll have school, and and you you gradually ease into that. But it's also you know I mean I think to, to remember that you're you're balancing two great loves, right? You're you're balancing this deep and wonderful love for your for your children, which is sometimes all consuming, and then this other love, which is which is also similar and 
and and demands your your attention. But eventually, I think based on your life and your other obligations, everybody finds their their groove. It you can't really prescribe to other people how to do it. But you, I I remember when you know when when my second was little. Sometimes you have like forty five minutes to even catch a nap, you know, and then that gradually grows into more. So you don't have as much time, but certainly you have this whole other layer of experience, you know, that was not available to you before, you know, this exposure to this other human being for whom you are responsible, at least for now. I think that opens up a whole deep part of you that, that interacts with this part of writing that we don't quite understand, you know, that, that adds layer to who you are, that adds layer to your, to your being. And so, um, I remember hearing, um, Jhumpa here being asked that question and her answer was, you know, you, you have a lot of, you have a lot more to write about, but less time in which to do it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. Um, so I want to ask you about Claire of the Sea Light. And, um, you know, it's the first adult novel that you have written in several years after spending some time writing nonfiction and also writing YA novels. And uh, particularly with respect to YA, I'm curious to know if you notice a difference in your approach when it comes to writing for a YA audience uh, or uh, versus writing for an adult audience. Is there anything you can point to that's significantly different or is it pretty much the same and it just so happens that uh, your audience happens to differ in age? Um, you know, it's, um, it's, it's in many ways the same, the same process because it's, I mean, ultimately you have to tell a story and I try not to differentiate too much. I mean, except with the, with the picture books, you know, in, in which the format is a lot more different, but with the young adult, you know, I, I still try to let the character guide the way that the story is told. I try not to think, oh, I'm talking to younger people. And because in, in my experience now, sometimes the younger people are, are so much more um, emotionally intelligent even than, than a lot of older people. You can't like generalize across, you know, with younger people. Um, so I, I try to let it just, I try to let the voice, the way the story is told emerge out of, just the character. I try to let the character guide me, whether the characters, because you can write an adult book about an eight-year-old character, right? Like as as with Claire, or you can write a young adult book about someone who is um, older. So it's um, the first part is just getting immersed in that world and getting lost in that character and just letting them of whatever age um, guide you. And and I. I like for the process to feel organic. I like when to feel as though I'm just participating in it as opposed to sort of forcing it. Okay. And then um, in terms of how these, how these uh, books begin for you, like, is there a way that your fiction in particular tends to start? I mean, I, I know some writers, it's like a title. Some writers are very imagistic and they see something that sticks in their head and they can't get rid of it. Like, is there a line of consistency between your works that you can point to uh, in terms of how they they get their start? Well, each of them gets uh, gets started in a different way because there's some that you know some things that you just hear a line, you hear someone say something, and then 
you know, it spins the whole thing. For um, Cleo, for example, it was, I had been watching a documentary in which some, someone said something about uh, parents who give away their children. And, and I saw it, it's as if then Claire just emerged, like this vision of this little girl emerged for me. And um, other books like The the Dewbreaker was, I had just heard that expression, you know, linked with someone who was a torturer. And I thought, oh, this is intriguing. And with The Farming of Bones, I saw a painting that talked about the, uh, the, the massacre that the book talks about. Uh, a, a friend of mine who grandmother had survived the massacre had painted her crossing you know through this bloody river and then I went and researched that more so sometimes it's just a chance encounter sometimes it's something you overhear and then for some reason that thing really sticks in your mind and becomes a larger story okay well uh, I've got to let you go here soon but I wanted to ask uh, one final question regarding um you know living in the diaspora but writing uh fiction uh involving haiti and involving a place that you know as we discussed is home to a lot of suffering and i'm curious to hear you talk about um you know the the kind of survivor's guilt that i know that a lot of uh, people who have left haiti sometimes feel and a lot of people who have left uh you know various places where there's a lot of uh, strife uh, to come to a place that's uh, more privileged. And like, do you ever, I mean, how, how do you um, make sense of that? And have you ever received criticism from people, you know, who think that you are out of your depth, you know, writing about the country that you were born in, but, but no longer live in uh, at least full time? Um, well, it's not, I mean, we all get criticism from sometimes the people who know the subject best. You know, um, yesterday at the Brooklyn Book Festival, I was on a on a panel with two other writers. Um, one who is from Ethiopia and one from Croatia, and we were talking about this very same subject: how so sort of someone who is outside of the country, what right do you have? And you always get that question, sort of, you know, how dare you, what right do you have, and and how can you know? And it's um, it's a valid question, this question of writers who are inside versus writers who are outside. But for me, it's always been important to remember that we're not the first people um, to do it, you know, um, from joys to Beckett and others and say, you know yeah. we're not yeah so we're not we're not inventing this you know this this idea of people writing outside and, and there's a whole slew of literature of people who are not even from the place writing about other places Conrad and others um, you know and 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 every you know journalist who ends up writing about uh, either a novel or nonfiction book about about a place that they've covered and things of that nature. So, um, but there is there is still that feeling of um, that that even for the person doing the writing, that self questioning is necessary. But it goes back to reminding myself and um, and examining the experiences of others who have traveled this road. That you know, I can only tell the the story that I know, 
you know, I can tell the as best as I can the story from my perspective and to acknowledge also that and to make it clear, I think it's important to make that clear that I'm not telling the only story, that I'm not the voice of everybody, that I'm just telling a story that I believe in, that I'm passionate about, that may ring true for some people, that may not ring true for others. So it's um, it's important, I think, to put oneself in a chorus in a way. And one way that I do that, you know, I... I edit a lot of um, work, uh, you know, edit anthologies about Haitian writing. I try to support as much as I can translations with forwards and other efforts so that people, if they're willing and open, can get a whole range of Haitian writing so that they don't feel like, you know, any voice, even, you know, even and including mine, is drowning out other voices. Well, Edwidge, it's been uh, such a pleasure to talk with you. I thank you so much for taking the time uh, to educate uh, both me and my audience. And I wish you all the best of luck going forward, um, you know, both in life and in writing. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a, it's been a great joy. All right, you guys, there you go. That is Edwidge Dantica. Go get her book. It's called Claire of the Sea Light, and it is available now from Knopf. You can find Edwidge online at Twitter, where her handle is at Edwidge Dantica. She's also on the Facebook. And hey, don't forget to sign up for the TNB Book Club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And don't forget to go get the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best way to listen to this program, hands down. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. And you can also access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So please go get it. If you haven't done that, the app itself is free. So, uh, I hope you, you know, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Edwidge is a, is a warm, uh, presence. Is she not? I feel like she emanates goodness while, uh, I, on the other hand, I'm not sure what I emanate. What do I emanate? Please remember that Edith Wharton once referred to Ulysses as quote, schoolboy drivel and that Chaucer died on October 25th in the year 1400 That is it for now. Thanks uh, for being here. Thank you for listening to the program. I really appreciate it. And I will be back soon with another uh, bookish individual for your entertainment. And uh, I hope that wherever you are, uh, you are emanating goodness. What are you emanating? (laughs) 